Father, we thank you for the time we have to be in fellowship. I thank you that you've placed each one of us into the body of Christ as it pleases you. I ask, Father God, that you'd fill us to a point of being overflowing with the things of your kingdom. I thank you, Father God, that you sent your son for us to die for us and rescue us from hell and from wrath. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and that we can fully trust what you've given to us. I ask, Father God, that you'd be with the young people that go downstairs this morning, that they would hear the gospel, that they would hear the truth, fill their minds and their hearts with the kingdom. Be with the teachers and the helpers, that they would know that they're being used by you to bring the gospel to the next generation. Thank you, Father God, for this time we have this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you are excused. This morning, um, this is a, a strong church morning. So the whole message has to do with with being a strong church, we aren't going to start our next series until next week. And I want to start this morning with a story from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the reason that I wanted to start with that is because this man, this lawyer, asks the most important question that can ever be asked. There isn't any other question that we could ask more important than this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This morning, I'm going to be looking at the aspect of hell and how it relates to us in the church. Where we need to go is going to maybe challenge us a little bit because we sometimes have some ideas that aren't necessarily correct. One of the places that we need to start with is that every person who has ever existed will live forever. Now, you may not think of yourselves as being that kind, you know, eternal life. That's something we look forward to in the future. You are eternal. Every sinner, every person outside of Christ is eternal. The human creature that God has created is eternal. So that also fuels this whole idea that's presented by this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because that reality of the physical body dying is true. But the soul, the real you of existence, will go on forever. So the, the part of that question takes us to where are you going to spend that eternity? 
heaven or hell. Now, the idea of hell is difficult. Some, instead of hell, they teach this idea of annihilation, which is the belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell, but instead will be extinguished after death. Annihilation is attractive because it it helps with that offense that some have of spending eternity in the terrors that are described in Scripture. Hell's ugly, nasty, it's terrible. So let's just say that everybody just that doesn't go, you know, isn't in heaven, is just annihilated. That's easy. But that's not what's described in Scripture at all. Another popular view is reincarnation. That's a lie about what happens after physical death. Reincarnation literally reincarnation literally means a rebirth into a new body. And in most contexts, reincarnation refers to the process after death of a soul returning to a new body. Some religions teach reincarnation involves more than a human soul and bodies. And I I ran across this on one of my trips in India. We got a hold of this guy and we're interacting with him and he's telling us all about this reincarnation thing and one of his examples is that we can, as humans, return as a cow. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not coming back as a cow. I'm just not going there. Scripture clearly refutes the idea of reincarnation. Remember what Jesus said on the cross to the criminal, remember? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's not reincarnation. He didn't say to that man, you'll have another chance to live a life on earth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 25, 46 tells us that upon death, believers go on to eternal life, while unbelievers go on to eternal punishment. There's only the two possibilities. So the most important question is where are you And I going to spend eternity. We're created as individuals. And we will remain the person that we are for eternity. So my personality is not going to change for all of eternity. Some of you go, oh no. (laughs) There's only heaven or hell. There is no third option. And in either place, you will fully understand where you are. In heaven, the believer in heaven will understand the incredible joys of God's presence. A person in heaven will fully understand the work of Christ as being the reason for their being in the incredible, indescribable glory of God's eternal kingdom. We're going to know for absolute fact. We will, we will know so purely that it's because of the blood of Jesus that we have entered into the kingdom of God. And we will know that for all of eternity. Amen. Now, on the other side of that, a person in hell will understand the terror of being separated from God. A person in hell will fully understand their decision to reject God is the reason for their indescribable pain and suffering. They will understand that. The person in hell knows perfectly why they are there because they have seen 
the glorious, holy, awesome, sovereign, perfect creator of the universe because of judgment. So they've seen God, and they, I believe that they're going to see him in all of his glory, and they're going to go, wow, did I ever make a big mistake? And there's nothing they can do about it. And so they will know for all of eternity their failure to yield to the one and only Almighty God. Now, to help us with this idea of hell and heaven and all this, I want us to go over the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16. For many of you, this is familiar. Beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a very important story. The rich man, he went to hell. Hades, that's, so his only destination is hell. While he's there, he was fully aware his sins were only committed during his lifetime before death. But in what God has given us in Scripture, he never asks, how did I end up here? He never asks, did I really deserve this? He only asks for someone to warn his brothers about his fate. The eternally condemned have a fully informed, accurate, aware, and sensitive conscience, which in hell becomes a part of the torment without relief. There's no relief, not even for one moment. In the story that Jesus tells, the rich man never protested or questioned being in hell. 
He knew eternal punishment for his lifetime of sins was justified and deserved. He knew very well the reason he was there. Where this story also needs to point us is that the hard-hearted will be eternally hard-hearted. But the time for repentance has passed. Once in hell, you you don't get an opportunity to repent. This means that sinners in hell will be sin-infected, evil, immoral, and depraved beings for all of eternity. Forever unredeemed and unregenerate with no possibility of repentance. The lake of fire will be a place of eternal rebellion against God. That in itself should make us go, that's terrible. Unsaved people do not sin for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. They sin for eternity. Sin is eternal. Hell is scary. If we put this all together, hell should be scary. It should be terrifying to us. When we look at Scripture, Jesus described hell using vivid, horrifying terms. He never avoided the intense, grim reality of the place of intolerable suffering and eternal judgment. He never avoids it. Jesus described hell as such a terrible and dreadful place that he even said we should should be willing to lose a body part if that's what it took to avoid going there. That's pretty extreme. Matthew 20, sorry, Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's extreme. Hell really should scare us, and we should understand it needs to be avoided. The other thing that we see in Scripture is that it is consistent in its description of hell. It's not a good place. Daniel describes hell as a place of shame and everlasting contempt. Paul calls it a place of endless destruction and punishment. Jude calls hell a place of eternal fire and darkness. Now, I don't know how you have fire without light. But think about what's going on. The darkness, you could go, well, that's because you're not in the presence of light. You're not in the presence of God. It's eternal fire. Well, I don't know. I've been burned a couple times, but I don't want to do that for all of eternity. In the dark, that's pretty extreme, and it needs to be. John describes the condemned as suffering everlasting torment with no rest day or night. Now, I want, I want to give you six other specific details about hell. One, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that brings some real imagery to my mind, Matthew 8, 12. Spiritual and bodily destruction, Matthew 10, 28. Fiery furnace, Matthew 13, 42. 
outer darkness. Matthew twenty two thirteen and outer there. Somebody asked me about that, and in that outer part there, what I take that to mean is there's darkness, and you've gone beyond what we typically understand as being dark. Unquenchable fires, Mark nine forty eight. Endless torment, Luke sixteen twenty three. Hell is ugly. Hell is a place of endless pain, fear, loss, agony, anger, torment, and hopelessness. For many of us, we've had times in our lives where we have felt hopeless. We just, there just doesn't seem any hope. But especially as, as believers, God sees us through that and we, we get past that hopelessness. There's many ways that in our life we, we conquer that hopelessness, especially with the, hope, the, the help of God. But in, help, in hell, there is no help. The hopelessness never goes away. So we, we paint this picture, and the Bible paints this picture of this, this place of terror. So why do people go to this terrifying place? What, what sends someone to hell? And actually, the answer is extremely simple. People go to hell because they reject salvation through Jesus Christ. They rebel against God. Rebellion against God. Rejecting Jesus sends you to hell. Period. End of discussion. All right. So this brings me to two questions for this morning. Why hell? This is a question that I'm asked a lot, and it's a question that's on the minds of a lot of people. Why hell? And the other question is, why is the reality of hell vital to a strong church? And it is vital to a strong church. So we're going to look at those two questions. So first of all, why hell? Hell's difficult because it doesn't seem to fit our understanding of God. Our, our concept of God that we like is that He's good and kind and loving and caring and merciful and, and gracious. And we just get all these warm fuzzies about God. He's perfect in all those. He loves us and he's just, he's, he's just perfect in how he is gracious and merciful to us. So he's perfect in all those things. But he's also perfectly holy, righteous, and just. God, God, we have to remember God is perfect in every way. And because of his perfection, he cannot tolerate sin. We cannot, in some way, achieve his holiness. We can't. We're broken. We're sinners. So let's continue with this idea of hell and the reason for it. Hell was originally created for the devil. This is important for us. Matthew 25, 41. Then he, this is God, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The eternal fire, that's hell, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus didn't die for the, the angels. 
They have no way of repenting. They have no way of being restored. But they're eternal, so God prepared a place for their rebellion. And that's why hell exists. And that's sad because people choose to reject God and go there. People reject the idea of eternal punishment because they can't believe a a loving God could be so cruel to banish people to such a horrible place. I hear that a lot. How can a loving God send someone to hell for all of eternity? Remember, God's love never voids God's justice, righteousness, or holiness. And His justice, righteousness, and holiness never voids His love, grace, and mercy. They all exist at the same time with the same amount of emphasis. Also remember that we have this idea of hell and, and this judgment, but it is His love through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that provides the way to escape God's wrath. He's provided the way. Yes, He has to be just He has to pass judgment. But in his love, he provides a way. They work together. There's there's another way that people reject hell that's popular. And that is that they don't consider, people don't consider sin as being all that bad. I'm never, I'm not a mass murderer. so, So I'm not that bad. Right? A sin is a sin. This comes from a misunderstanding of the universal, wicked, abominable, detestable nature of sin. We cannot lose sight of how bad we all are. Every one of us is a black-hearted, wretched sinner from birth. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you are. You have it. It doesn't matter how good looking you are. It doesn't matter how tall you are. Every human being has been born a sinner. This also should make us understand that every single human deserves hell. There's no way around it. Every single person who has ever existed deserves to go to hell. Keep that in mind. When, God, when we understand God's perfect nature then, and we put all that together, we should have no difficulty understanding hell and how to avoid it. God is perfectly faithful. He does no wrong. We know that from Deuteronomy 34. It says upright and just is he. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, his desire is that no one perish, but that all come to repentance. But again, it's simple. Only through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can a person be saved from hell and enjoy God's glorious kingdom. Religious ritual won't work. 
Intellectual profession won't work. A life of good deeds won't work. We are saved from hell through the precious blood of Jesus. We are saved and given entrance into God's glorious kingdom by doing the will of God. Oh, man, will of God. How do we know the will of God? Well, here again, we make the will of God really too complicated. And this is where we start. If you really want to know the will of God, here's where you start. The will of God is that you believe in the work of Jesus Christ. If you really want to know the will of God, then that's where you begin. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're not in the will of God. Listen to what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires. Now, when that word is used here, desires, we could say, this is God's will. This is desire. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So in that passage, what is the will of God? That people be saved. Jesus said this, John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father. That's pretty clear. Jesus Christ is going to tell us what the will of God is. What is it? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What is the will of God? That people be saved. How? By the blood of Jesus. You can forget about all the other parts of God's will. you got to get this one right or you don't have any of the others. We are only saved from hell by the personal faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, that helps us understand some of the why of hell. So the second question is, why, why does that matter for a strong church? Well, let me see if we can follow that through. Christ gave the church a specific task. We hear this a lot. Put this in the context of really God's will and what's going on. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So why is this all important for the church? It's important because the church is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We, that's, that's believers. It's not this building. It's believers. We, the church, are to promote and proclaim the gospel to the world around us. Why? Because those people outside of the church that aren't believers are going to hell. The church... The part, there's a part of this whole thing that the church is involved with that's also associated with hell in a different way. And that is that the church is to equip all believers with the tools to overcome sin and to remain free from the world. Now, a lot of times we focus on that. I want to I do away with my sin and I want to live a good life and I don't want to be encumbered with the things of the world. 
Well, the reason that's important with this discussion about hell is that in this kind of lifestyle, the lifestyle that says, I'm putting away sin, I'm going to do what God will do in me so I don't sin, and my lifestyle is totally different than the world, that means that every believer who's working on that and being encouraged by the church and equipped by the church to do that represents God's kingdom and are taking the gospel to people simply because people notice the difference in how they live. If you're a believer, people are watching you. We just flew to Syracuse, New York, and had a great time with the kids and everything. And so I've been around a whole lot of people at some airports. And I'm a kind of a people watcher. Nobody watches me. I always watch them. So I'm watching all these people, and I'm going, man, do they know the gospel? Many times when I've flown, you know, here's, here's 170 people on an airplane. How many of them know Jesus? If the plane was to crash, how many of them would go to hell? Whoa. Everywhere you go, you represent the kingdom of God. And you represent how to keep someone from going to hell. If we live and if we continually promote living like Christ wants us to live, we're different than the world. People look at you and go, whoa, you're really different. Some of them may go, you're weird. That's what we want. We want our lifestyle to be so noticed that they go, why are you so weird? Why are you so different? And we can say, because I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I want you to believe that too so you won't go to hell. And then it's all up to them. They can choose or not. We are the people of God. We are the church. Do people notice a difference in how we live? And does it matter to us whether people are going to heaven or going to hell? So we're, we're living under this great commission from Christ. Go, make disciples. Paul gives us an excellent illustration of the working out of the Great Commission. It's really in two places, but I'm going I'm to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That's the church. So he's using the metaphor of the human body. You know, I, I said in our first service, I'm, I'm a little pinky. And somebody said, no, you're a pinky toe. Whoa. I'll get him later. The body, you, if you're here today or if you're listening and you're a believer, you're part of a body. That means that the church, believers, are God's hands, mouth, feet in this world. We're to be doing the things that Jesus Christ would do if he were here physically on the earth. 
No matter where you go, do you look at your life that way? No matter where I'm at today, I'm going to do what Jesus would do if he were here. I wonder. The other place that this takes us is that all Christians are disciples. The scriptures tell us that. We are all disciples. We're trying to be like our master. That's what discipling means. I'm a disciple. That means I'm going to follow my master. I'm going to try to be exactly like my master. The Bible teaches us that. The Bible teaches us that we're saints. Saints. That comes from a word that, that really has to do with being separated. We're separated. What are we separated from? We're separated from the world. We're separated to God. We're special because we're saints. Scripture also tells us that we are ministers and priests. Every single one of us in this room who believe in Jesus Christ is a minister or a priest. When we gather together, it's not just Zach and I that are ministers and priests. Get over that. You are too. These truths sometimes have been lost because people wrongly assume that the work of the church is to be done by the professional pastor or priest. You know what my job really is scripturally as pastor of FBC? My job scripturally at FBC is to equip all of you to go minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to love one another and build one another up and take us to a place where the church is in, incredibly strong. That's my job. Now, there's also a part of what I do. I'm doing it right now. There's something that God has said, this is what I want you to do. But that's not the only place that ministry takes place. You, as a believer, are a minister and a priest or priestess. That scripture, every believer, both ministry and priesthood are fundamentally about service. A priest is a divine representative, and it's a special representative. The, the priest serves as a bridge builder between God and humanity. And by bridge builder, I mean the priest, the, the duties of a priest would be to take the people into the presence of God. So priests do that. That's one side of the bridge. The other side of the priestly bridge is that the priest would bring the concepts of God to the people. So there's this bridge working thing in the priest. That's not just for me and Zach. That's for all of us. We do that no matter where we go if we're really working at being who we are in Christ. In this new covenant-based priesthood, all believers are priests. We also know from Hebrews 4.14 4, that each believer serves under the Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest. So we're directed by him. And every Christian has the responsibility and privilege to minister in his name. It is such an incredible blessing and privilege to represent the kingdom of God. Every one of us in this room that's a believer, if you're watching and you're a believer, you are in ministry. 
You, you are in ministry. So how does this apply? A proper understanding of hell is vital to a strong church because understanding hell is one of our greatest motivations for ministry in the church. We know we're saved. So first of all, we can go, I can relate. At one point in my life, I was going to hell and I know what I was living like. And then Christ came into my life and I no longer had that drive of destruction. So I know. As believers, we also gain this deep, passionate understanding that others are going to hell and we passionately want them to be saved. Paul even said, I beg you, come to Christ. We'd be saved from eternal pain and suffering. That's a motivation to minister. The church proclaims the gospel. Why the gospel? This, they work together. Do you see it? you got a whole society that's going to hell. They need the gospel. Where's the gospel going to come from? From believers. It's going to come from the church. It's going to come from you, believers. That's the only way to avoid hell. The church, the church teaches... I can't talk. The church teaches... And equips believers to take the gospel to people. The church teaches and equips people how to live as people saved from hell. So it isn't just that as a minister, you, you just have to be evangelistic and you just go out there. Yeah, we all should be. I mean, really, when was the last time you shared Christ with someone? How many of you have ever prayed with somebody to come, with, come to Christ? Well, we can't just limit it there because part of what we do in ministry is to build one another up and help one another and teach one another and grow this whole thing that we call the church. That's why it's strong church. The, the church equips people how to live as people saved from hell. That may be part of your ministry. Every believer is to be involved in ministry. That's the main point of Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. So the question is, how are you involved in the ministry of the church? It's not optional. You are a minister. So, so what is your ministry? Here at FBC, here's some, here's some places you could go. Missions. Stewardship. Facilities and operations, music, technology, children's ministry, youth ministry, Sunday school, small groups, the hub. And, and there's somebody in the congregation that's going, you know, I'm thinking about starting this ministry. It's, the Spirit of God has stirred this person up, and they're going to probably be starting a new ministry. That's awesome. Every one of us are in ministry. Pick one and go do it. Well, I don't know if that's the right one for me. You won't know unless you start trying. If you don't go anywhere, you're going to get to where you want to go really quick. You, brothers and sisters, are the body of Christ. Find a place to minister and see people rescued from hell by the power of the gospel. 
I got to tell you that one of the most incredible things you can ever experience is to be used of God to go to somebody and present the gospel to them and be involved in that process of them coming to Christ. Wow, what does that mean? That person that God has used you to communicate the gospel is not going to everlasting terror. That's the highest thing you can do. What a high. What a thrill. Every one of us needs to be involved in ministry. Go find a place to minister. Father, I thank you that in your wisdom and your omniscience, you have placed each one of us in the body. And you have, you, you include us in your work. That's astonishing. Father, I ask that you would see in us a desire to rescue the lost. Holy Spirit, stir us up, drive us by your impulses within us that we would desire to minister. Help us with our fear that we would put that aside and choose to minister. The time we live in needs strong church. People who present the gospel and proclaim the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you're working and your power is mighty. In Christ's name, amen.